0: we continue in this series, uh, part four of five, as we're looking at uh, Christianity under scrutiny. And tonight we ask this uh, big question, you'll see it there on the, uh, on the service order. Can, How can a God of love send people to hell? Now if you like uh, uh, sermon outlines, then there's one on the back of the notice sheet. If that would help you to see where we're going, you can take notes or uh, just follow it with your eye as we go through. How can a God of love send people to hell? It's a big question. Let's pray that we'd uh, understand the answer. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that we've been singing of you being a great and mighty God, a faithful God, a loving God. And uh, for some, as we look into this question of judgment and of hell, of an eternal punishment, they don't seem to go together. Help us to grapple with that issue well tonight. And may we be much clearer. Open your word to us. And by your Holy Spirit, teach us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me, uh, this evening, introduce uh, Greg to you. Greg and I met regularly to talk about Jesus. He agreed uh, to read through a gospel, and he found it so engaging that he read through all four. After many weeks of meeting together, I said to him, So come on, Greg, stripping away all the secondary issues, where are you when it comes to Jesus? And he said something like this to me. He said, there's so much about Jesus I like. I like his teaching, he's compassionate, he's dynamic, I love the way he tackles the Pharisees and the way he confronts hypocrisy. His leadership is amazing, so decisive. But all this talk of hell, it seems so harsh. And I can't understand why such a loving man would speak about such a terrible thing. See, Greg had identified something very important. Jesus does speak often about hell. In fact, he speaks more about hell than anyone else in the Bible. So why would the most loving man who ever lived speak of such a thing and so often? The American anthropologist Margaret Mead thinks she knows why. She believes Christians speak about hell to scare people into following Jesus, which she finds thoroughly distasteful. She said... It's an open question whether any behaviour based on fear of eternal punishment can be regarded as ethical or should be regarded as merely cowardly. To use scare tactics to bully people is really questionable. Is that what Jesus did? Speak often about hell to frighten people into following him? Well, of course not. Anybody who has looked at the person of Jesus in the scriptures knows he's not like that. No, Jesus spoke of hell because he loves people. And so it comes to our first point on the handout. Jesus' loving warning. Every uh, parent's worst nightmare has been unfolding in these last weeks in the Portuguese resort of Praia de Luz since the disappearance of little Madeleine McCann. Every loving parent is terrified of bad things happening to their children. I can't bear the thought of something terrible happening to Susanna, Bethan or Joshua. And so I warn them of dangers, because I love them. I tell them not to talk to strangers, not to play on the road, not to stick knives in the toaster and not to drink the shampoo. Important things like that. I might even add to that not to eat pizza in the shower. But I don't do it to scare them, and I don't do it to control them. I certainly don't do it to to give them nightmares. I do it because I love them, and to make them realise the very real dangers there are in this big, bad world that we live in. Now honestly, if I were not to speak of those dangers, you'd have every right to call me irresponsible. And, And if I simply couldn't be bothered or didn't care enough to tell my children of the dangers they face, you would be right to question my love for them, wouldn't you? Jesus, of course, is no different. Jesus warns his children of dangers because he loves them. And the greatest danger of all is to spend eternity in hell. Turn with me to Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31, page 1050 in the Church Bibles, page 1050. And here we will see in this, uh, in this story of rich man and Lazarus, something of the horror of hell. Page 1050, 1050, Luke chapter 16, verse 19. At the beginning of the story is one of opulence and lavish comfort. Verse 19, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. See, read this and instantly you find yourself envying the rich man, wanting to be in his shoes with his comfortable lifestyle and plush surroundings. By contrast, verse 20, at the rich man's gate laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Uh, the, the contrast between the two men could not be greater. The rich man without a care in the world, Lazarus in pain, hungry, living like a dog. It's a horrible picture, but, but that's not the most distressing part of the story. Jesus went on, verse 22, The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And this is where the story becomes really disturbing. While Lazarus, the, the poor beggar man, was escorted to heaven, the rich man, who was so comfortable on earth, ended up in hell, verse 23. See, in eternity their roles were completely reversed, And then it seems magnified a million times. Having died and gone to hell, Jesus described the rich man as, verse 23, being in torment. The man himself says at the end of verse 24, I am in agony in this fire. So bad was it that he pleaded in verse 28 that his family be warned so that they would not come to this place of torment. Now do you see, in Jesus' teaching, hell is a place more terrible than we can begin to comprehend. And Jesus is very clear, it is a place of no return. Verse 26 tells us that this is a place that no one escaped from. And so we ask the question, why would Jesus speak of such a place? His message is very clear, avoid going there. That is generally why Jesus spoke of hell. He, he lovingly warned us to do anything to avoid it turn with me to Mark chapter 9 and verse 43 page 1014 page 1040 Mark chapter 9 and verse 43 and see how Jesus warned us to avoid hell at any cost Mark chapter 9 verse 43 if your hand causes you to sin cut it off It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. If you uh, do a Google search on the name Aaron Ralston, you will read a story that hit the news some years ago. Aaron Ralston, a mountaineer, was 27 years old when he uh, was trapped in a remote desert canyon in eastern Utah. His arm was trapped when when a boulder weighing approximately 1,000 pounds fell on him. And having been trapped in the mountains for five days and with no sign of rescue, Ralston used a a pocket knife, what was not much more than a pocket knife, do you remember the story, to cut through his arm just below the elbow. And then he applied a tourniquet and administered first aid before rigging anchors and fixing a rope to rappel to the bottom of the Blue John Canyon. And he then hiked out to meet rescuers. It is a remarkable story. Aaron Ralston took the drastic action of cutting off his arm to save his life. And what Aaron Ralston did physically to save his life, Jesus says here, we should do spiritually to save our souls. So if your hand keeps stealing and so stops you from following Jesus, cut it off. If your hand keeps typing in the address of pornographic websites taking you away from Jesus, cut it off. If your hand takes drugs which pull you away from Jesus, cut it off. Now, he's not speaking literally. But Jesus is saying, go to extreme lengths to avoid hell. What a kind thing to do, to warn us of the danger ahead. And it really is a loving thing to do because speaking like this does not make you popular. No one likes this bit of teaching. And any of you who have ever talked to unbelievers about hell or even believers sometimes will know it does not make you popular you don't do this to get a popular following what a loving kind thing to do when there is a real danger ahead that you warn somebody of it Jesus loving warning secondly God's loving judgment I was speaking to somebody on Tuesday this week about this very issue of hell and he asked a brilliant question He said, if hell is such a terrible place, why did God create it in the first place? It's a good question, isn't it? Well, turn with me to Matthew chapter 25, which is where uh, we turned on Tuesday when we were talking about this. Page uh, 995, Matthew 25, verse 41. Now, if you like uh, underlining Bibles, then now's the time to do it, but not if you've got a church Bible in your hand. Uh, If you've got your own Bible, uh, underline this. This is a great verse to remember. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 41. It's halfway through a parable, the parable of the sheep and the goats, but I'll read just verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Do you see why that's so helpful? Hell was created for the devil and his angels. Hell was created for those who rebel against God. Hell was created to punish evil. Now I haven't yet met anyone who doesn't think that justice is a good thing. I may meet somebody like that one day. I'm just saying I haven't yet met anyone like that. Quite the opposite. In conversation, people often have said to me, I can't believe in a God of love who ignores all the evil in the world. Have you ever met people who say that? Do you say that? We cannot bear the thought of evil and wickedness going unpunished. We scream out to God to bring people to book. We instinctively know that to ignore evil is not loving. And so we expect a loving God to create an appropriate punishment for evil, don't we? Now now let me pause here for a moment. As we've gone through this series, uh, Christianity Under Scrutiny, I've encouraged us to make a note of one big word each week. Now this week's big word is the word love. It's a great surprise, isn't it? As we discuss the challenging subject of hell, I want us to understand the word love. Indeed, let me recommend a book to you. Somebody gave it to me earlier at the end of last year, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God by Don Carson. It's a brilliant book and it does help us to understand this word love. Love. See, one reason we we ask the question, how can a God of love send people to hell, is because we have such a poor understanding of love. In our culture, which speaks so much of love and sings so often of love, we have a remarkably poor grasp of it. Love has been so romanticised, it has no depth to it. Uh, Shortly after I became a Christian, I was given a a very helpful little booklet. Uh, This little booklet taught that God has two sides to his character, his love and his justice. His love wants to, uh, he wants to love us, and and yet he wants to forgive us. Uh, But he is just and must punish us. How does he put those two things together? Now, Now, the problem with that thinking, and that's the way I thought for many years, is that it drives, I think, an unhelpful wedge between God's love and God's justice. And so over these last years, I've become convinced that God's love, or God's justice, beg, I beg your pardon, God's justice flows out of his love. So love demands justice. Now just think of the case of little Madeleine McCann. I, I, I guess it's touched everybody who's got a heart. I've found myself waking in the middle of the night thinking of and then praying for that poor little girl and her parents, Jerry and Kate. Now at the moment, the overwhelming desire is to see that poor little girl reunited with her parents. But surely any thought of the monster who snatched her makes you long for them to be brought to justice. And isn't that a loving desire? Isn't that the right thing? Let me put it this way. If something terrible happened to my children like that, and then I did not call for justice, wouldn't you be right to question my love for them if in some way I wasn't bothered whether this person was brought to justice? Would you not question that I love them? Does not justice flow out of love? Of course it does. Now, when we stop and think clearly, we get that right. And once I've got that clear, I wouldn't dream of asking how can a God of love send people to hell? Now my question is, how can a God of love not send people People to hell at least some people to hell love demands a just judgment and so here in Matthew chapter 25 verse 41 we see that the God who is love prepared a just punishment for evil evil should be punished and if God were not to punish evil he would not be loving how can a God of love not send people to hell see there is little doubt in the minds of most that wicked people should be punished uh, you know, Name your, 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 your great dictator, uh, Pol Pot, Stalin, Hitler, mass murderers, the perpetrators of 9-11, those who snatched little girls from holiday apartments. These people should be brought to justice. Indeed, imagine a world without justice. Uh, in March 1996 in Dunblane in Scotland, 43-year-old Thomas Hamilton walked into a school and indiscriminately shot and killed 16 5- and 6-year-olds and their teacher while they were having a PE lesson. The following days, uh, the day, as it was being discussed on the television news, I remember one woman with similar age children speaking of how terrible it must be for those poor bereaved parents and she said this, and what's more, those poor parents will never see justice being done because Thomas Hamilton turned the gun on himself. We can't live without justice. Well, listen, the good news is that although there are many people who do get away with murder in this life, they won't get away with murder when they come face to face with God because God is a loving God and he will bring justice. God's justice and a final judgment is a good thing, a loving thing and that's why hell is a necessary and loving part of God's creation. One then, a Jesus-loving warning. Two, uh, God's loving judgment. Thirdly, our evil actions. See, when we think clearly then and biblically, logically, we know that God's love and hell are not mutually exclusive. The thing that really bothers us is how a loving God can send good people to hell. That's the real problem, isn't it? How a loving God can send good people. Good people to hell. It's not, once we've got our thinking clear, it's not that God sends people to hell. It's just that we find it hard to cope with the thought that people we know, nice people, are not saved. And let me say that should distress us. The Christian A. A. Hodge wrote this A man who realizes in any measure the awful force of the words eternal hell won't shout about it, but will speak with all tenderness. Of course, we should be distressed by the thought of people suffering for eternity. So how can we come to terms with it? Well, we need to really revisit our question from last week and the issue of goodness. And if you weren't here last week, you might like to get a copy of the CD and look at it, because I looked at this in more detail. But for now, turn with me to Mark chapter 7 and verse 21, page 1010, 1010. And if the issue that concerns us is how can a God of love send good people to hell, we need to work out who is good. Look at Mark chapter 7 and verse 20. Now, you'll see from the heading at the top of Mark 7 that uh, this chapter is all about clean and unclean. And what Jesus is dealing with here is he's saying, who is, it, who is it that's clean and who is it that's unclean? Who is it that can come into the presence of God and who is it that cannot come into the presence of God? And you'll see his summary in Mark chapter 7 verse 20 and it's a devastating summary. Jesus went on, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean, that is unfit to be in the presence of God. What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean for from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils... Come from inside and make a man unclean. Now, look, here we see, as we saw last week, that no one is good. No one is clean before Almighty God. I find the order of this list very revealing. See, if I'd have started this list, well, I wonder, if you'd have started this list, if you were making a list of all the bad things, how would you have started it? I know how I'd have started it. I'd have started with murder and then theft and then adultery, or maybe adultery first, but I'd have put it in that sort of order. But Jesus doesn't start that way, does he? Have you noticed? If he had, we'd be sitting here justifying ourselves. Wouldn't we? be murder? No, haven't done that one. Theft? No. Nope. Adultery? No. And so I start to feel very proud of myself by the time he gets to the nitty-gritty, the stuff that I know I've dealt with, but already I'm feeling so good about myself. Jesus knows how I'm keen to justify myself. And so how does he start? Did you notice it? Verse 21. He starts with my thought life. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts. And he starts with my thought life because... Well, he wants me to be guilty right away. I am rumbled right at the beginning. There is no way out from the very first word. I have had the most wicked thoughts about some people. There have been people I've wanted out of my life and off this planet. I've wanted bad things to happen to people just because they have crossed me. See, what goes on in my head is very revealing. My thought life shows shows me that I think I'm the centre of the universe so if you get in the way of me if you do something that I don't want you to do to me if you cross me then I think you should be removed because I think I'm so important that I'm the centre of the universe and so I've committed murder in my head have you? in our thoughts let me talk to the men here I don't know how women think Um, you know (laughs) sorry that didn't come out quite I haven't got that in my notes I'll let you see them afterwards to prove it. I'd stick to the script. Let me talk to men here. You know the point. I, I mean, I'm a man, so I think the way men thought. Men, in your thoughts, in our thoughts, we've committed sexual immorality, haven't we? It's the mental striptease, the imagined sex, theft and greed, the times I've so wanted something that wasn't mine and, and had been there. had there been no implications, I'd have taken it. And the deceit, making myself out to be something that I'm not. Do you ever do that in conversations? You know, you rerun the conversation and you're always the winner. We love to present ourselves as more impressive than we are. And envy, I've seen people eaten up with envy. And you see the point? The things that go on in my head. That's why Jesus starts with my thoughts because my thought life shows me my true self, oh, I can look very respectable on the outside. The heart of myself, the real me. Well, look how Jesus describes us. Verse 23, he uses the word evil. Now, that is a very strong word, but that's Jesus' assessment of you and me. And if you look at your thought life, if you're honest, you'll agree. How can a God of love send good people to hell? He doesn't. There are no good people. Whoever we are, we've committed the greatest crime in the universe. We've rebelled against the God who gives us everything. And that's why the things in this list are evil because every time I break God's commandments, I'm rebelling against God. So we think that to be envious is not so bad. You know, if we look down the list, envy, that's not so bad. But it is because God said, do not covet. And so when I'm envious, I'm saying, I don't care what you say, God. I will be envious. I'll make up the rules. I'll be God. And at that point, when I'm envious, even though he's told me not to be, I'm shaking my my fist in the face of God. And I'm saying to God, you won't tell me how to run my life. So you see, here's the real problem. When I live, verses 21 and 22, I am living in deliberate and willful rebellion against God, and that is evil. And if you're still not sure how wicked or how evil we are, then let's come at it from a different angle. Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, page 1189. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 to 10, page 1189. Jill read it for us earlier, I'll read it again. Verse 6, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people. Now here then, Paul is speaking of the final judgment of God and notice how he starts in verse 6. Very importantly, just three words. The reason we turn this up, just three words. God is just. And then he goes on to speak of eternal punishment. Eternal punishment is a just punishment. It cannot be any other way with God. He is is just and so the punishment fits the crime. And so you see, if it looks harsh, if the punishment looks harsh, it's because you and I don't think the crime, sin, is so bad. In your mind, come with me to the Old Bailey, that great home of British justice. Walk in with me to the public gallery and as we sit down it's the end of a trial. In the dock we see a man standing wearing a suit and the jury handing the verdict to the judge. We've seen none of the trial, we've, we've heard none of the evidence, we only hear the judge's summing up and his sentencing. And looking at the man in the suit the judge said I sentence him to life imprisonment with the recommendation that he should never ever be released. Now take him down. Now as we hear that sentence, what do we assume? We believe that we're in a place of justice. And so we assume that the crime committed must be very serious indeed. Because the punishment fits the crime. And so as we look at these words and we see verse 6, that God is just. And we see the punishment, verse 9, of everlasting destruction and being shut out from the presence of the Lord. We must conclude that the crime... The sin must be very serious indeed. We always do it the other way. We look at our sin and think we're not that bad and then we look at hell and think, oh, that's too harsh. Do it the other way, friends. God is just. Look at hell and see how terrible it was and then say, we must be really evil. God is not harsh or unloving or unjust or unfair. As we look at hell, it tells us we are more wicked than we ever realised. And yet, as we look at the Gospel message, we see that God is more loving than we could ever imagine. The fourth point, God's loving rescue. Yes, we are evil. Yes, we deserve hell. But no, God doesn't want to send people to hell. Turn with me to the maybe the most famous verses in the Bible. John chapter 3 verses 16 to 18, page 1066. Page 1066. John chapter 3, verse 16. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he's not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. God so loved the world. How amazing that, a God, would, that God would love a world that has rebelled against him again and again and again, that God would love you and me even though every day we shake our fist in the face of God. And how kind of God that he should go to such lengths to save us. And how loving when we see what it cost him, the death of his one and only son. Friends, doesn't the gospel thrill you? And look at verses 17 and 18. Jesus doesn't condemn people to hell. No, we condemn ourselves. Verse 17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Now do you see what this tells us? On judgment day, no one who faces hell will say, it's not fair. No one will say that. But those who are saved to spend eternity in the new creation will say, I don't deserve this. See, understanding the gospel changes our thinking, or at least it should. We think we're all good people who deserve heaven, and isn't it terrible that anyone should be sent to hell? The gospel tells us we are all evil people who deserve a hell, and isn't it astonishing that anyone should be given heaven? Let's pray together. Well, let's have a moment of silence, and then I'll uh, pray a prayer, and then Nathan will sing for us. We thank you, our Lord and God, that you are a loving God. We thank you for the loving warning that Jesus gave us over and again as he walked this earth to avoid hell at any cost. We thank you that you are so loving that you won't let evil go unpunished, that you simply won't turn a blind eye. And we thank you that despite our being evil and wicked, you love us so much that you should send the Lord Jesus to rescue us. Would you thrill our hearts with that truth and help us to live lives of thankfulness, for the rest of our days through Jesus Christ our Lord Amen Mm -hmm.